the end state of AI as this dominating, controlling force that takes over the human population and anything to that effect, I think downplays the flip side of the benefits that you could get from bits and pieces of what you're describing in that worst case. Because the reality is that it's picking up a lot of the grimy, hard, repetitive work that humans generally have to do and stripping that out to allow humans to elevate themselves and think about activities and allow for that creative aperture that they never would have otherwise because so much of their time was being burned on something else. So I would, again, I would put forward that I think that the future of this and this race for this technology is actually positive because it is ultimately going to result in the entire workforce shifting in terms of its structure, but being elevated in terms of what it is able to focus on. This week's guest is Skylar Moore. By day, Director of Science and Technology at the Defense Innovation Board at the US Department of Defense. And by night, a competitive hip-hop dancer. She's also sister to previous guest, Dr. Merritt Moore. A disclaimer, everything Skylar shares in this episode is her personal view and perspective. She only speaks for herself and does not speak for the Department of Defense or the Defense Innovation Board. Ellie born to a Korean mother and American father, Skylar's upbringing equipped her with a deep curiosity, an independent worldview, and valuable problem-solving skills. Her unconventional mindset enabled her to defy convention, shed her comfort zone, and traveled to teach schoolgirls in Afghanistan in 2013. This boundary-breaking attitude also led her to become the Director of Science and Technology at the Defense Innovation Board only six years later. In this expansive and informative episode, Skylar shares the value and impact of her parents on her life focus, how her interest in national security emerged while teaching in Afghanistan, and she shares her personal perspective, knowledge and insights on agile living and the imperative of how to consider and manage risk in an uncertain and unpredictable world. She explains how she applies this to build confidence, solve problems, maintain humility and remain calm in the face of chaos. We also discuss gut instinct and innovation and her view on serendipity. Scala shares her advice to parents on how to guide their young daughters to thrive in the categories of STEM and STEAM, as well as her advice to women in the workforce. At 45 minutes in, we dive deep into AI, as I ask Skylar to define in simple terms what AI is, before we get into AI ethics, standards and traceability. We also discuss the AI arms race and the value of AI to humanity. I also ask Skylar about cyber warfare and cyber threats. She explains the concept of zero trust architecture as a means for nations and businesses to think about network security. Skylar also shares her recommendations on changes to the education system to prepare us for the future and hiring for creativity. And finally, we discuss the role of diversity in innovation. Skylar, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm excited to be here. Oh, very excited. It was such a pleasant surprise when Merritt Moore, Dr. Merritt Moore, a previous guest, contacted us and said, hey, why don't you interview my sister? And that came out of the blue. So thank you and big shout out to Dr. Merritt Moore for the recommendation. Absolutely. Our work has unexpectedly converged and we've discovered that we have a lot of similar folks that we're talking to. So I'm glad that we were able to <laughs> set this up. And she's in London at the moment and you are in Washington, D.C., I believe. That is correct. Cool. Let's just jump straight in. We're we're living in extraordinary times and you would certainly appear to be at the intersection and right at the heart of these extraordinary times, operating at the intersection of science, technology and art and particularly dance. But you have 
navigated a rather interesting sort of path, as has your sister, and you both share the, this duality between the balance between art and science. So I don't know quite what to refer to you as, so maybe you could give me some sort of reference how you would describe yourself and what you do. Well, I think of myself mostly through the lens of my work. So I mostly think of myself as technology and national security focused. And then I have a strong passion for dance and just the arts writ large on the other side that I don't actually decouple from any of my work. I mean, Merritt certainly talks about this very frequently because her professional life truly does marry both. But for me, it's really important to continue to feed that creative aspect of the arts because I think of creativity as a muscle where if you don't use it frequently enough, it can atrophy. And it's critical to have that creative element to then support perhaps a more scientific and technical side. And so I really do try to develop it, even if it's not as intertwined into my professional life as it is for merit. Certainly my perception is a lot of people do decouple creativity and curiosity from their scientific endeavours, albeit that people like Einstein recognise that tapping into that sort of creative side and their imagination was really the key to unlocking some of the greatest discoveries. But in your career, do you observe that more people today are beginning to recognise the importance of creativity and curiosity and the cultivation of those talents in terms of helping them progress in their careers You know, I think that folks are at least becoming more open-minded to the idea that they could continue to cultivate it. I think perhaps what has driven the divide between the two or the requirement that people choose is this misconception that to pursue the arts and really to foster that creative side is to spend time on something that is really secondary to anything that you're really working on and that it is following a passion or a pleasure or something that's just non-essential. And to me, I think that is a mis characterization of the value that you're getting out of it because anything that I have learned from the arts, whether it's in terms of problem solving, in terms of thinking of new ways of movement or thinking of a new way of approaching something, has always had lessons that have been applicable to my more science and technology-driven professional life. And so I do believe it is a misconception. I believe that people are starting to recognize that there is some true value in embracing that other artistic creative side, but I think there is still a ways to go before it's widely adopted. Okay, so maybe that's a good point to really kick off with your childhood and the impact your parents in in cultivating and nurturing that side of your character. Because I didn't feud merit, I believe you grew up in in LA. Similar environments, sure. Similar environments, and we've heard some of the stories. But maybe you could just give us a little recap. Sure. In terms yeah. of their their multicultural the multicultural environment you grew up in. Yes. So uh, my mother was born in Korea, but came to the U.S. when she was younger, and my father was born in the U.S. And we all grew up in Los Angeles. And Merritt and I grew up in a, a bit of an interesting environment where living in Los Angeles, a huge part of the city revolves around the entertainment industry, and our father worked in that field, and so it was something that he was closely connected to, but on the flip side, he had determined very early on that he wanted us to have no part in that. I think that he had seen some of the potentially negative sides. Wise man. Yeah, so... Ahead of his his time. Perhaps. So we grew up, uh, we didn't have a TV in the house. We were not allowed to read magazines that were covering any sort of the kind of the entertainment side. We rarely saw movies. I mean, to this day, a bit of a black hole in terms of knowledge about any sort of pop culture before 2000, 2005, if not later than that. So we grew up in a, a bit of an odd environment where we were 
separated from the industry that was largely defining a lot of our city. And then that gave us a lot of opportunity to just explore a whole new weird range of passions. Because from the beginning, it was stated to us, you will see this entertainment side and you will see a lot of people perhaps taking that track because it is the common path in the city. You do not have to take that path. There are a lot of other options and we encourage you to pursue whatever your passions may be that are far removed from the traditional path. So I think that setup really pushed both Merritt and I in the direction where we were able to pursue the kind of diverse and perhaps to some people odd range of activities that we do now. Can you remember the first time you remember at what age you were, the first time you recall your mother or father saying that to you? Saying anything about the entertainment industry, I mean. No, that you can do and pursue anything you want to pursue. You know, I don't know that it was ever explicitly said to us. I think that it was simply they cut out the the quote traditional option that existed in Los Angeles, which was to look very closely at the entertainment industry. And then they just opened up the rest of it and said, what do you want to do in here? Mm -hmm. And for me, that involved a broad range of sports. I did gymnastics. I eventually went into diving and dove all the way through college. Having dance as part of that, there was any number of weird activities that we saw and wanted to pursue, our parents would just nod and say, sure, let's try it. And if you like it, that's great. If not, that's great. We'll, we'll just pursue whatever you want. For them, it was always very important that we were pursuing something because we wanted to do it. There was never any question of our parents pushing us or forcing us to do an activity on their behalf. They, I think, instilled in us very early on that it was important that anything we did needed to be driven from a self-driven point of view. That's interesting. How did you find your way? What did you gravitate towards when you start pursuing all these eclectic different interests and exploration of different sports and activities? Yeah, I think I was built a little bit like a tank. And there was kind of a common understanding that you could kind of toss me around anywhere and I'd kind of bounce back and it would be okay. So I think perhaps from a safety perspective, my parents were a little bit more confident that I could just try these things and not completely break myself. And then just in terms of an intellectual capacity, you know, I think that for myself, I just had a very strong, strong personality is the nice way to put it now. Probably back when I was a child, the word for it would be obnoxious, but I had a strong understanding of what my interests were and didn't really need a lot of guidance because I'd find something and then lock onto it. And it was really hard for me to let go of it until I'd really pursued it to the end and understood it and understood what I wanted to do with it. And so my parents found that they didn't really need to push me in any particular direction. I would find direction myself and pursue it very aggressively. And if anything, they would need to pull the reins a little bit or pump the brakes occasionally. So you are a competitive hip hop dancer. I am. Yes. You are. So and you're also in your professional role uh, within the Department of Defense, the Director of Science and Innovation, I believe, at the Defense Innovation Board. The, I'm the yeah, Director Def- of Science and Technology at the Defense Technology and Defense Innovation Board. Yeah. So that's a really interesting sort of uh, fusion of two different areas of interest. So when you talk about locking onto things, you clearly locked on to hip hop and dance in let's say your physical artistic side and you I'm assuming you locked on to an interest in technology and probably to a certain degree international politics and relations in another capacity. So maybe start with talking to us about that interest in dance and how you cultivated it and how you ended up competing in hip hop. And you have to share some videos with us so I can put it in the show notes. (laughs) Absolutely. So my interest in hip hop actually came from when I was very young, I would sit in on Merritt's ballet classes 
And at the time, I wasn't enrolled in anything yet. I was a bit young for it. But inevitably, what would happen is Merit had her ballet class, and I was just very energetic, and I'd get bored. And so I'd wander around the studio, and there were a bunch of different rooms where different types of classes were happening. And I would gravitate towards the one that had hip-hop and just get very excited and be running around and trying to imitate them on that side. And so I think my mom realized, okay, well, you're being a distraction and a bit of a nuisance out here, so we may as well just put you in a class. And so getting into those classes was a great outlet, but it really wasn't anything that I pursued seriously until after college. All the way through my high school years, I was very focused on diving. That was really the activity that I worked on. College was the same way, where I was on a varsity team for diving, and I danced occasionally, but again... Diving as in highboard diving or or scuba diving? Yes, as in springboard and platform diving. Springboard, right. Okay, wow. Yeah. So that was really my main activity. And then I got out of college and realized that I really, first and foremost, needed some sort of physical activity to burn off steam. But then also that I suddenly had the bandwidth and ability to pursue something that I'd always really enjoyed. And I was in D.C. and D.C. has a rich dance community. And so I auditioned for the team that I'm now on and was fortunate enough to get on and have been competing with them ever since. Wow. That's incredible. So how do you balance that? Do you you continue to train and compete at the same time as maintaining your professional career? Yeah. It, I mean, oddly, again, I think of it as complementary. I really don't think of it as dueling forces that I need to manage. So my practices are either on the weekends or late in the evening. So I'm able to work as late as I need and then go to my practices. And to me, it really is the perfect palate cleanser because otherwise I would just be working on national security and technology issues all the time. In my free time, usually I'm reading about it. In my free time, usually I'm engaged in other activities that are related to it. I would be very one dimensional if it weren't for this activity. And so it's incredibly helpful to be able to separate, go to an environment where I'm dancing with, you know, 30 to 40 other people, none of whom have any awareness of national security and tech issues, nor do they care. So they will not bother me about anything related to work. And then also it's pushing me in an environment where you both mentally and physically have to learn very quickly and integrate with the rest of your team. And I can kind of turn my brain off in a way for three hours because people are just telling you what to do and placing you and moving your body around as they need. And it really it really works well for me to help reset at the end of a day to have that separation in a completely different activity. You mentioned that your father and mother prohibited you or didn't have telev- access to television. And you're living in this entertainment bubble and sanitized entertainment bubble of LA. How did you develop your worldview in that situation? And how did you, how was, how did your father cultivate your curiosity and interest in, as you started, as you started to mature in, let's say, culture beyond LA's particular and unique environment? Sure. So I think my mother had a pretty strong influence in that because given the fact that we weren't spending huge amounts of time watching television, she was very good about making sure that there was a broad range of activities both in our house and out that we were able to go to. So we were constantly going to plays, to ballets, to performance, to different arts performances on one hand, and then also in our house just had a very large library that I was usually just burning through for most of Mm. my childhood and different brain teasers lying around everywhere. And any time that either of us would really ask a question or try to dig into something, inevitably, suddenly a book about it or some some sort of game that you could play about what we'd asked about would 
pop up somewhere in our house. So <laughs> I think it was wow. my mother's way of testing which pieces we were particularly interested in because we dig in a little bit and either keep asking questions or let it be. But it was uh, an effective method, I think, for her. We always ask a question of our guests about did they grow up in an environment of abundance and scarcity? It's a very open sort of question, really just to understand the emotions and the memories you have around that those, that period transitional seminal time as you're going from child to adolescent to, to adult what what are your reflections on on that environment i mean Certainly. from but from what you've said it sounds like there was uh, certainly an abundance of stimulation yes. intellectual stimulation and a scarcity of contemporary media, media information and television, which can have sort of a different impact on different people. But uh, how do you think it influenced you and what that environment was like? I mean, the abundance certainly of the intellectual stimulation is, in my view, the reason that I am the way I am, that Merit is the way she is, because it was just this freedom to dig in and pursue any topic of interest that came in your way. And so to me, I think that abundance of openness and opportunity to pursue different passions, regardless of whether it was the norm of what other people were pursuing or interested in, allowed for us to pursue these perhaps non-traditional paths that didn't reflect what other people had put forward. And on the scarcity side, I mean, I think that it's always, I think it's entertaining to my friends inevitably to play the game of, have you seen this? Have you heard of this person? Have you <laughs> encountered this piece of pop culture? And inevitably the answer is no. Probably the downside to it was that it required extra lift on both mine and Merritt's parts to figure out that human engagement piece. And that will make me sound like a robot even to say that out loud. But there's some, you know, there's some common ground that you can share when everyone is ingesting some of the same information and we didn't have that. And so we needed to find other ways of connecting and making those friendships and making those relationships built on topics that were not those standard ones that others could fall back on. Okay. Your interest in science and and technology and let's say international relations, how was that cultivated at home? Without the absence of television, I'm sure when all your friends at school were probably consuming contemporary pop culture, I would assume that you must have been becoming increasingly aware of the politics and the international relations of the time, which I assume was around probably the what late 90s, early 2000s. An yeah. interesting time in American history, both cultural and political. It was. So, I think that from the national security side, I mean, frankly, neither of my parents were particularly invested or devoted to pursuing that topic at all. I mean, they were certainly aware of general politics. They we would occasionally talk about it at our house or at the dinner table, but it wasn't a strong focus on the defense side because, frankly, they're just most of our community, you, we didn't know a lot of people who were in the military. You didn't have a lot of those connections that might have existed in other cities. And so more so, I think the interest may have stemmed from the fact that both my parents were certainly history buffs. And so a lot of that information was constantly being pushed to us, whether it was in whatever travels we would do, whatever vacations we did would usually be to a location where there was a lot of historical significance and we could learn about it. Whenever we were at home, that was kind of a topic that would come up frequently, which is, again, probably signals to my family's entire nerddom in general. Mm -hmm. But they were very enthusiastic about it. But what really drove me down that path was I got to college and... It was just one of those topics that I found and I latched onto, and then I just kept pursuing and kept trying to dig deeper. And in doing so, I discovered that 
national security specifically was the area where I was passionate about and felt that it was critical. And uh, a huge part of what led me to that conclusion was when I taught at a school in Afghanistan. And that really just illuminated for me the importance of national security, because at that time I was so focused on women's education and I was so and continue to be so passionate about that topic. But it was impossible for that to be executed in a situation in which there was no national or degraded national security. So, so just to, for clarity in terms of the chronological order of this, you went to Afghanistan before or after Harvard? In the middle. So During, okay. In the middle, I actually, I fractured my back diving and I had to take a year off. And so during that year off, I worked at a couple of different places from the Global Terrorism Database to the embassy in Rome, a military base in Germany, and then ended at a school in Afghanistan. And what year was that? It was in between my sophomore and junior year. It was 2012 to 13. So still quite a lively time in Afghanistan with the Taliban, with American, sort of significant American troop reinforcements there with was it general petraeus at the time that was running afghanistan in 2013 when i was there i think petraeus perhaps had just transitioned out but 2013 was fairly calm at least while i was there but i returned the year afterwards to do research and at that time it was not calm things had, had spiked substantially 2014 was not a good year that's interesting so you went to harvard to study political science and government taking a step to go to afghanistan even with an interest in women's and girls' education and empowerment, that is an incredibly bold, uh, courageous uh, step for someone to take at age around, probably around 20, to do that into a highly risky environment. Can you just talk about that and that decision and where there are alternatives? (laughs) Sure. I mean, it really, it, to tie it back maybe to what I was saying previously about latching onto something and digging, I, I latched on latched onto foreign policy, had discovered that national security in particular was that area of interest. And then I happened to have a number of mentors across that year that I took off who had either worked in Afghanistan or were passionate about certain parts of Afghanistan. And I started reading heavily about it. I did a lot of research and I hit a point where I realized I'm digging, but I think that there is a limit to what I can do just reading about this in order to truly understand or to add another dimension of understanding and perspective to how I'm thinking about these issues. I need to be able to talk to people who have lived it, who have experienced it. I need to be talking to people who are working on implementing some of those solutions that I'm reading about. And so I became a little bit tunnel vision determined to get to Afghanistan and learn more about these topics and found a school where I was where I could volunteer to teach. It was it allowed me to both feel as though in my small way I was able to contribute to part of the solution related to Afghanistan while also learning about it myself. I can tell you my parents were not thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine my at my decision and my explanation of what I was doing. But it was something that for me, there was no other path to go. To me, mm-hmm. there was no other option. I needed to do it in order to get that critical piece of perspective that would make me better in my work and understanding what was happening over there. I recently heard you being interviewed by Reinvented Magazine around STEAM. And you use this quote, which is an advice to young women, which is to expand yourself with confidence and go outside your comfort zone. You were certainly living that at the time by doing that in Afghanistan. Was that something that you were conscious of at that time? Or is this something that you've you've come to realize is important from your own experience? Or was that part of what drove you? 
You know, I think of it as putting yourself outside of your comfort zone in the necessary and correct ways. Because I don't, I certainly don't want to put forward the idea of just do wild and crazy things for no reason. I strongly believe in taking risks that will very clearly contribute to expanding your perspective, to changing the way that you think about something. And so to me, the risk associated with my decision to travel to Afghanistan was very much a third or fourth order piece that I was thinking about because the first three were the most important, which was, you know, I want to learn more about this country on the ground. I want to hear from the people who are living through this and experiencing this. I want to hear from the people who are implementing solutions or facing these challenges. And then a secondary issue was, and there is some risk associated with, with my going. And there were, you know, there are steps I can take to mitigate that risk. But it was very much kind of as a side effect. I would certainly encourage people to do the same thing in assessing, you know, whether your efforts to push yourself out of the box are for the right reasons. Don't do it for no reason. Don't jump off a cliff without any sort of idea of the impact that it's going to have on the back end. But if it's something that you're passionate about and if the risk is, you know, secondary and not the main reason you're doing it for adrenaline or whatever else, find the ways that you can mitigate the risk and take that jump where possible because it will inevitably teach you things about yourself that you never would have known otherwise had you just stayed uh, in a more comfortable environment. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect place to pivot onto your, uh, what I believe is your, I suppose your uh, uh, val values you hold true to for living, which is around agility. But before we do, can you just talk about that experience in Afghanistan, what it was like working with and teaching and coaching or mentoring these young girls and whether you're still in contact with them and your hopes for uh, Afghanistan and for where the country may go in the future? Because I think we're at a quite an interesting period of time with peace talks with the Taliban. Certainly. So, yes. And for anything that I talk about, I mean, I think we've mostly talked about my personal perspective, but certainly going forward into anything related to my work, I only speak for myself. I do not speak for the Department of Defense. I do not speak for the Defense Innovation Board, only from my own perspective. So the experience when I was there was incredibly humbling. I think that it you know, I think sometimes that you can see examples of quote, voluntourism where people are going out and having these experiences that are perhaps more personally focused than focused on the outside. And I think there was risk of that happening because I was so young and going into something that I really didn't know about. But I was very lucky to be at a school where I was surrounded by wildly intelligent, wildly driven young young Afghan women who kept me absolutely tethered to the ground and kept me very grounded in the reality of what they were facing, of what their challenges were. And what they just gave me a perspective on the challenges that I face at home, the challenges and the ways that I think about national security that I never could have imagined. And so having that experience and having that closeness with these girls was something that it's really hard to understate. And I'm still, I'm still very close to a bunch of them. So they, a few of them came to college here in the U.S. There are some who are actually in D.C. and so I get to see them regularly. Others I just get to keep in touch with them on social media, but I also continued to remotely mentor and tutor them until around 2018, 2019. And I was able to stay connected with them through that, but it really is it's impossible to overstate how incredible these women are. The school is the School of Leadership Afghanistan, SOLA, and it's in Kabul. And it just, it is the first all-girls boarding school for women founded by a young woman who had to dress as a boy when she was young to go to school because she was not allowed to go to school. And it just, 
it it really gives perspective, I think, about the challenges that one faces and the challenges that others face and the duty that I view of yourself if you come from a place of privilege to help those who do not have the privileges that you were just born with. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So just for my show notes, SOLA, S-O-L-A is the school. Yes. Okay. How did these young women feel now that they're pursuing an education outside Afghanistan? What, What do you think their hopes or fears are for the future of their country? So the school has been very explicit about the fact that they do not want to contribute to a brain drain from Afghanistan. So what they really make an effort to do is ensure that you are giving these girls the opportunity to get the best education they can, and sometimes that means going outside of the country, but that they are instilling these girls with the values that will encourage them to then return to Afghanistan and take positions of leadership. So for a lot of these girls, I think the approach is they are really enjoying their time and the the growth that they can experience if they leave the country and go to school elsewhere, but they understand that the way to, that they can best support their country and the way that they can best contribute to a solution in the long term is if they return and, you know, take that impossibly difficult role that I cannot even fathom of trying to fight their way into a role of leadership and make change inside their own country. And in some cases, some of the girls that I still talk to here aren't able to go home because the environment isn't safe right now. And so it's really just an odd waiting game between You know, you need it to stabilize, but you also need to be home to help it stabilize. And it is just this impossible dilemma that I do not envy and I cannot fathom. Yeah, it must be. It's a completely separate sort of uh, discussion in its own right, given the, 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 the well, just the very nature of the tribal makeup of the country with the legacy of both the Islamic extremism through Mujahideen and the Taliban and international terrorist groups probably still have influence there as well as more of the secular side. It, there must just be a continuing melting pot for that country. The admiration and respect I've got for these young women, it's incredible and all credit to you for doing what you're doing. It's amazing. I, I deserve none of the praise. It is entirely on them for facing what they do every day. It is truly incredible. Well, okay. We are living in a a highly risky or or, a risk-driven environment, whether it be social media, politics, climate. Everything we face today is risk-based. And for many of us going forward with the uncertainty of where the ambiguous nature of the future lies, on a personal level, what you're doing and the way your attitude to life seems to be wonderful guidance for people to understand that you cannot stand still. Progress is necessary. Change is the only constant. So perhaps you could just give us your perspective on the importance of agility, of continuous learning and feeling maybe discomfort with your current environment and why people should be striving to continue to explore their environments and their minds and push our own neuroplasticity to continue to learn and develop. Absolutely. Happy to talk to all of that. So I think for the from the perspective of risk and what is appropriate or not to take, I try to think about it in terms of necessary and non- unnecessary risk. And so it, that's probably a bit tied to what I was talking about yeah. before, where there are risks and uncertainty that exist regardless of what you do, of how much effort you put in. And those are, you know, future planning, death, any, there are any number of really catastrophic or really fantastic events, but it's just pure chance that you cannot control in the future. So great success due to just random circumstance, great failure due to random circumstance. These types of things are items that you can, you know, 
imagine in all of the broad range of what might happen, but you will never actually really be able to control. And then on the flip side, there is actually unnecessary risk or uncertainty where there are items that you might not know about, but you can take steps to actually reduce that uncertainty or reduce that risk. So, you know, a simplistic example of that is you started a new job, you don't fully understand the role that you're doing. There's this uncertainty about how it's going to go and what you're going to do, but there are ways that you can ask people for help. You can read more about it. You can learn more about the company or the experience that you're having, and that will reduce the uncertainty and risk. My, I, I would put forward to folks that giving significant weight and stress to necessary risk and uncertainty is not a very productive use of time because you cannot change it. If there's nothing you can do about it, you know, even stressing about it is something that, you know, it may or may not happen, but there is ultimately nothing that you personally can do to change it. If that is the case, perhaps not the best use of your time and energy. Absolutely fully condone people going after that unnecessary risk and uncertainty reduce it but to reduce it but I do think that maybe in terms of mentality folks can help make that delineation and in either case you either work towards it to try to reduce it and then feel confident that you did your best so you can just leave it be or you believe that you don't have to you know you don't actually have to stress about it because there is nothing that you can do so I would encourage people to take that approach rather than having this deep fear of risk and uncertainty. So can you talk specifically about how you've applied that thinking in your own career to take you to where you are now, which is an incredible role that you're in, probably at the age you're at compared to people that have filled it before? Sure. I, I mean, I think it's it, it, I apply it in a way that gives me confidence while maintaining humility at the same time, which I think is particularly important for someone of my age in my position. I think it is very important to always be able to acknowledge what I know and what I also do not know. What I try to do is, you know, for those elements of uncertainty and risk that are, that can be addressed and that I can do something about, I have that part of my brain where I latch onto something if I think it needs to be fixed or if I want to learn more about it. And I just, I keep digging and keep looking into it until I've come to a solution that I think reasonably encapsulates what the problem is. And so I think that has served me well across the variety of positions that I've held, just because it's not being afraid of the uncertainty. It's about relishing the opportunity to reduce it. And so for me, I take a lot of pleasure in the puzzle solving and the problem solving of just ripping something apart, putting it back together and being like, ah, I understand how this works now. And I think I have a better solution for it. And then on that flip side of, again, staying calm in the face of chaos for, you know, organizational structures, events that I have no control over. An example is that in the Department of Defense, we are a massive organization. We are 3 million people, you know, a, a very large budget, operations all over the globe. And there are so many elements that I simply cannot control in terms of bureaucratic roadblocks, in terms of random global events that suddenly like completely change the type of work that we're trying to do. Or you may have been trying to drive forward a policy that is suddenly made completely moot by an event from one day to the next. And to me, I am able to stay calm in the face of that because I am comfortable and confident in the concept that I cannot control it. And mm -hmm. that is perfectly fine. And also, I have the ability to express that to my team and say, everyone, you can stay calm and you can remove your stress because we have targeted the pieces that we can address and that is the best you can do. And if you did your best effort to control those pieces that you can address, then there, you should have no regrets and you should feel good about the work that you've put forward. I was going to talk to you about the importance of gut and we will talk about it. But you're working in an area where innovation is core to what you're 
having to deliver. As you say, in a in a department of, did you say three million people? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Without even sort of uh, hazard a guess at the size of the budget, but the pressure to find meaningful innovation isn't doesn't come from rationality and a lot of the people I interview and a lot of the things I've read about innovation having worked in innovation in in an advertising and technology sense inside agencies innovation often comes from the fusion of two different completely idea sets or as someone said to me it's idea sex how do you deal with the nece- how do you manage the necessary ambiguity of what you're dealing with day to day and how do you then balance that with the ra- the importance of having rationality in terms of, as you said, the unpacking, the solving problems and putting it back together again, isn't really so much about innovation. How do you balance that need to do that, to continue to learn and develop, but with the need to tap into your gut when something feels right, whether it means bringing people together or fusing different concepts to help you move your teams forward to embrace and to have productive innovation? So I... In general, my personality is very focused on logic and reason. And so I think that where gut instinct fits into there is actually when I feel that I have realistically done all of the work and due diligence I can on the logic and reason side. And there is a gap that no one realistically, there is no research I can do to fill it. There is no data that I can collect that would fill that gap. And that's the place at which I really do feel confident that, okay, I'm going to use my instinct and maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but I did all of the work that I could to set myself up for success in applying that instinct. And I think that gut instinct is also particularly helpful in the context of putting yourself outside of your comfort zone, because your gut instinct, I think, is particularly effective at understanding what your limitations or boundaries are. And so for myself, I really try to use that to gut check. Do I think I can handle that? And think about the potential outcomes of if this went south and if this failed, would I be able to manage it? How would I feel about it? And that's where I think, again, having that instinct is particularly effective. We like to ask people about serendipity and where it's uh, had an impact on their life. And we interviewed Dr. Christian Bush from NYU, who's written this book called The Serendipity Mindset. And he says it's a mindset you can cultivate to develop what he says. It's, it's not just random luck, but it's that you cultivate luck. We tend to think in the podcast that it's uh, more of a mindset of how you combine your curiosity, creativity, and be prepared to take calculated risks to follow a path that others might not then encounter situations, scenarios, or ideas that you wouldn't otherwise encounter. Could you just talk about how serendipity has manifest in your life or how you, in your own way, in you, the way you describe your own mindset, whether there is an intersection there with what Dr. Christian Bush discusses? Sure. So I, I think that you can set yourself up for serendipity in a way. And what I mean by that is... My mother used to describe this as opening as many doors as possible. When I was young, you know, so I, w- I would ask the traditional question of like, why do I have to work on calculus? This makes no sense. I am never going to use this. I do not understand why I have to do this. And to her, she, she would explain it to me as, okay, maybe you don't like it right now, but there are a couple of options. You may like it in the future, in which case you have built the skill set now. If you get good grades in here, that means that you may have more opportunities down the road that opens up a number of doors. So think about door opening rather than just this kind of narrow event. And so in general, I have really tried to 
take that as one of my guiding principles of no matter what I do, execute it well so that I open up as many doors as possible. And then I can feel confident to just kind of step back and let the universe take me wherever it might, knowing that I have put in the work to open some really interesting and fun doors that I think I will be happy with no matter which one I go through. So it kind of helps me remove from the stress of planning or thinking about long-term I have to get from point A to point B, because for me, I'm much more comfortable in the idea that I just put in a lot of hard work right now. And it really does just kind of guide me down the right path because others will see my work, will push me forward to the right doors, open other doors that I didn't even know about. And thus far, it has worked out pretty well for me. I just kind of hop from one door to the next, depending on what opens and what seems particularly interesting. And it has has been effective so far. Does that manifest itself in your day-to-day work? I mean, the way that it manifests is just that there is no task that I take on that I don't take extremely seriously. There is no task where it's like, okay, we can kind of half, you know, half do this and that's acceptable to me. Everything should be executed and executed well. And so it means that there's a lot of intensity in the near term and a lot of relaxation in the long term for me because I just, Mm -hmm. I don't worry about career trajectory. I mean, of course I think about it, but I don't worry about career trajectory and what I'm gonna do next because I feel very confident that I've done the legwork now so that I would have the skills and ability and doors open to have interesting opportunities going forward. Beth Comstock, who was vice chair of GE, we interviewed last year, and she said, I think to us and also in her book, that we have to embrace living with ambiguity. You probably live at the boundaries of ambiguity in the day-to-day work that you're doing, both with artificial intelligence, with where cyber warfare is going, the future of battlefields. How do you deal with that? I try to approach it, again, as a positive and as an opportunity rather than as a negative or something that should add stress. So anything that is uncertain to me is an opportunity personally for myself to learn where I get the chance to pull it all apart and put it back together and see what I think. But then also it's an opportunity to make a real difference. I mean, the places where there are no clear solutions are the ones where you there is the most need for someone to step in and say, I will take on that hard problem. I will try to bang my head against that wall. And even if I can't solve it, maybe some of the research that I've done will help someone down the road to actually actually solve this. And certainly a lot of the areas of my work fall into that space where we're tackling those issues that nobody has an answer to, technical issues of technology that no one has seen before and no one understands the repercussions of. And so we need to be thoughtful about what that implementation is going to look like now. And I really do take a lot of value and pleasure out of pulling apart those problems, thinking about how we can make an early impact right now so that folks who are working in this space 10, 20, 30 years after us will have an easier time. Clearly, there is a need in relation to something like AI. Whoever you hear talk about it, and particularly in relation to what um, we've been, most people have seen recently, The Social Dilemma, or if you've read Roger McNamee's book about Zucked and the many other books around where artificial intelligence is going and the need for ethics. There clearly is a need to accelerate the investment and the education and the hiring of young women and more diverse people in STEM areas to ensure that we have different minds and different imaginations creating the the programs and inputting into things like the code of ethics that will drive AI going forward. What do you think, are there any advice you would give either to parents with young children, how to encourage their children 
to develop the skills that you've got so we can start to see a more diverse workforce, whether it be both in the, the private sector or the public sector, because we need to see an acceleration of it. And just one thing I will observe as well, my partner Elaine was, we were doing a lot of work for a, a company in Germany at the moment, building their website. We were looking for some images from Adobe Stock and some other stock libraries for women in leadership positions. You can't find it. Oh, God. It's, it's terrible. It's full of men, right. either with women around them or a woman that looks like she's doing a presentation rather than leadership with men standing sitting there with their pens. And you're going, sure. how can we be in 2020? And you think you look for in a stock library. That is a, that's an indictment on how slow technology companies and creatives are to embrace where we are. So we're seeing massive accelerations in diversity and inclusion in all areas. So when we're talking about something like STEAM, you know, clearly the need and where we are with the investments, there's a disparity. So I would just love your perspective on that and any advice you could give to help people either, yeah, just to help parents or even employers. It is an incredibly complex problem. I mean, it's something that actually we, the Defense Innovation Board, frequently looks at in terms of because it's unquestionable that the quality of your outputs as an organization improve when you improve diversity, whether it across sex, gen, like ethnicity, race, all of those things. No, certainly not just for, for having a good balance of men and women. So from a female perspective, I mean, I can reflect that. I am currently serving under my first female boss that I have ever had in the entirety of my career, which is a wild yeah. thing to say. <laughs> Bless her for all of her efforts. I think that there are perhaps different sides of it to look at that must be run in dual track. So the first is looking at the way that kids are raised by their parents. And I think I can specifically speak to suggestions that I would have for parents raising young women. And I think that it requires a strong push for confidence and constant positive reinforcement of exploration of new interests and activities that they are uncertain about. And so I think a lot of what we described at the very beginning of this was about how mine and Merritt's parents really made sure that there was never a point where we tried something and they're like, ooh, you sure you want to do that? Or mm, I'm not sure if that's right for you. There were, you know, in Merritt's case, certainly there was a positive push towards one, one activity. But I think in general, the approach was that we should, no matter what we tried, no matter what activity we picked up, the response was, sure, let's try it, see what happens. And I would strongly suggest that other parents that are raising young girls do the same, because I think that there are societal expectations that will put bounds on what young women think that they can and can't do. And the best that you can do is to create a safe environment in your home where they feel that they really can try anything and not get hand slapped, not get told that's not where they're supposed to play, not get told anything that would lower their confidence and ability to try new things. And I think that, you know, it will help STEM in particular, but it will help women's involvement in any number of activities if you just kind of step back and allow them to try everything without being told otherwise. Great advice. And then the, yeah. The only the second piece I would give is in terms of for women who are actually in the workforce. I just I, having examples of women that you can look to is a huge benefit. It has been fascinating to be in my current position and realize that I had so many questions about who I could be and what I should be as a leader and as a woman. And having an example to see has been a huge benefit. 
Could I have figured it out by myself? Probably. But it's helpful to have another example to look to and also to say, oh, of course, that's an option I can do. That's something that I can step forward to. So to the extent that you can connect women who are in leadership positions with younger women who need an example, I think that is a huge help. Okay, that's great. Great advice. So to jump into AI, as I say, a lot of people don't, many people I speak to don't really have a clear sense of what AI is. Could you give a simple overview of the difference in terms of the way it's categorized, how you segment AI between what's called handcrafted knowledge based on a a sort of if this, then that type of methodology to machine learning into deep learning and the emergence of neural networks. So perhaps you could just give a simple explanation. Sure. So I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about AI and it's helpful. So what you just described is one helpful way of um, parsing it out and then I can offer another as well. So from a, a very fundamental level, when people talk about artificial intelligence or AI, they all they typically mean something very specific. And unfortunately, AI tends to be blown up into this catch-all term where people say like the AI did this or, you know, artificial intelligence is taking over and that is applied in these broad strokes that become so general and becomes meaningless. And the reality is that artificial intelligence is algorithms and models that are applied to very specific operations within a system. So being precise about the fact that AI can mean something totally different depending on what you're applying it to. It can mean a self-driving car, but within a self-driving car, it's the vision system inside of the self-driving car that is then being processed to understand movement for the car. And then you can have a completely different set for you know financial algorithms where they're understanding movements that you would want to make to go up or down in terms of your investments. There is such a huge range. So that's kind of the first piece. Mm-hmm. When, when people say AI, you should always ask AI in the context of what, because that matters a lot. Yeah, and we're not talking, I'm not asking about getting to things like general AI. So we're just talking about the specifics of where we are today. I mean, I remember when I was at university in Edinburgh in the 80s, my upstairs neighbor was a lecturer in artificial intelligence at Edinburgh University. Oh, very uh, cool. You know, so even then, art, I mean, just think about artificial intelligence in the <laughs> 1980s, what it must have been like. So it has been around for a long time, but it's just evolving. And we are on that evolution, probably seeing rapid acceleration, particularly in relation to what we've just seen recently with OpenAI project and GPT-3 and the work that's Absolutely. been done there. So yeah, so sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's and it's a helpful kind of it's helpful for the next piece. So the first one is, you know, AI can is applied to a bunch of different applications. It has very different implications depending on that. But the other piece to what you're saying is that, you know, AI has been around really since the 50s. And it's only really recently that it's become this huge kind of buzzword for people to coalesce around. And it is important to distinguish the different levels of complexity and learning that exist in AI. So to your original point about handcrafted versus machine learning and deep learning. So for me, when I think about artificial intelligence, I think mostly on the side of machine learning and deep learning. Mm -hmm. And so whereas I think sometimes the conversation about artificial intelligence can include a much broader range of software that includes automation that doesn't really count as learning. So the separation is this. Say, you know, for systems where it is built on an if-then rule set that a person has written and coded for a system to follow, it is bounded by a specific input that the human has given and specific outputs that the system can perform. And there is an understood range of exactly what you can do. So let's use it as an example of a human. If a human was a 
handcrafted system, you would only be able to do the things that another person had told you to do. So if you're driving a car and someone told you every, you know, two streets, every two streets you turn left, that is the only thing you would be able to do because it's if I hit the second street, then I turn left. However, the really interesting and important pieces of artificial intelligence come on that machine learning and deep learning side, where it is the system is able to essentially build its own rule set and adjust based on the environment around it. And now the comparison on the human side is if you have a human driver where you are in a variety of environments, it can be foggy, it can be rainy, it can be sunny, you can be in a different country, but you have a general sense of how you drive and how you do it safely to avoid getting in an accident. And that is really what is on the machine learning and deep learning side, and that's where the true value is. But as you can imagine, it is incredibly difficult to understand the boundaries of risk and performance that is associated with those systems. That's a really nice, simple way to deconstruct it and to explain it to people. With these advances, clearly, that we're seeing, and we just have to think about you know, what Moore's Law has done to the acceleration and the development of technology, and what we're likely to see if we get to a singularity, as Ray Kurzweil uh, predicts by around 2035-ish, where AI might go. Your case, you're working with it in relation to def- defence investment, And obviously, there's an overlap there in relation to what's happening and what we're seeing all around with cyber, both cyber in the public uh, and the private sector, but also in the in relation to national security, which is where your focus is. When I was reading some of your papers and also just trying to reflect on this, it sort of struck me that we're in a sense, it feels like where we are with the use of these emerging technologies, we're sort of in a almost a a virtual cold war, whether it be with bad actors, whether it be with rogue nations or it be with old adversaries, not to name any names, but that's how it feels. And I watched the film last night on HBO about future battlefields and, and, the, and the emergence of cyber crime. And it talked about the, what North Korea did with Sony and it talked about what Iran did with the Sands, Las Vegas and what we're seeing. So this isn't going away. This is here for, we're, we're, this is just the new normal, to use that phrase that's been overused this year with the pandemic. But I'd love your perspective, your personal perspective, obviously, on what we're dealing with here and where if AI is accelerating at the pace we're seeing, what's the end game? So I think it's always important to take for me to take a a positive spin and perhaps a positive perspective on how that trajectory moves forward, because I think that while it may feel unique and previously unknown leaps forward in technology, there have been innovations in the past that have reflected a similar trajectory and ultimate kind of flip over of the norm of what everybody knows and thinks about. And I think that, you know, an example of that would be you know, having cars on the road instead of horses and carts, something that completely changed the face of how a city is structured, how the workforce is, any number of things, similarly to the printing press, to any number of of pieces that have fundamentally changed the way that we work and operate and live our lives. So I think artificial intelligence is certainly moving at a quick trajectory, but I would also put forward that it is not necessarily a completely unique phenomenon. In my view, I think that it's easy to have hysteria about the topic. I think that it's easy to imagine the worst case scenario that has certainly been assisted by all of the movies that I was not allowed to watch when I was a child, <laughs> but have been told about since. So I think that there's- They're not worth like, watching. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
there, there I'm sure there are movies about this and I've, I've been told that they're bad. So yeah. uh, the end state of AI as this dominating controlling force that takes over the human population and anything to that effect, I think downplays the flip side of the benefits that you could get from bits and pieces of what you're describing in that worst case. Because the reality is that it's picking up a lot of the grimy, hard, repetitive work that humans generally have to do and stripping that out to allow humans to elevate themselves and think about activities and allow for that creative aperture that they never would have otherwise because so much of the time was being burned on something else. So I would, again, I would put forward that I think that the future of this and this race for this technology is actually positive because it is ultimately going to result in the entire workforce shifting in terms of its structure, but being elevated in terms of what it is able to focus on. And I think that in the comparison of, you know, countries competing for it and perhaps the Cold War metaphor, it in many ways, I think that it frames that way because perhaps the media has framed it in this competitive sense that is largely in certain ways tied to national security. And we've certainly tried to make sure that piece of it is clear. But there's this whole other world of application for AI that is not national secure related and related to my work, frankly, where it will create massive improvements for most people's lives. Oh, totally. I agree. Across both countries. And I think, go off on many different tangents there. I mean, one that immediately springs to mind is Elon Musk with Neuralink and how he perceives the existential risk that AI poses to us as humanity. If unmanaged and misdirected and misappropriated, that you integrate machine brain interfaces to ensure that we progress and look at what Uval Noro Harari has written and where things may go. So I think there is some element of uh, utopian or optimism as to where how this could enhance our humanity. But there are there's a real we have a real challenge there on our hands to retain our humanity, to cultivate more curiosity, to deal with what would be required as a reimagining of our economy around potentially whatever Andrew Yang might call universal basic income or whatever the term he used for it is. There is hope there. But at the same time, you look at, you know, to my point about, as you say, a metaphor for the Cold War, you look at China and Xi has made it abundantly clear that investment and leadership and control of AI is the end game for China to ensure they take their rightful place as the predominant nation on the planet. But we all know what's happening in China in terms of how they're using that technology to govern and control and the positives and the negatives of it. So I would still just like to say, you know, there's a, we have to look at it as, and I, I don't want to get into discussing morality as to which side is right and wrong. But we are in this battle royale as to where artificial intelligence is going. And in that period of, and we are in this period of ambiguity. So what do you think the determining factors are going to be over the next 10 years to determine which way, whether we end up in a more utopian or a more dystopian? Or like all technologies, it tends to be a balance of both. You know, I think that for the utopian versus dystopian, it is absolutely more tied to what you have described of the people who are shaping the standards around the technology rather than the technical development of the technology itself. I worry less about a general AI that, you know, is suddenly out of control and performing actions that we didn't anticipate so much as I worry about humans setting inappropriate standards, not 
considering appropriately the biases of the data they are feeding into the systems and the negative outcomes that would come from that. I think that people inevitably are the problem. The technology is what we make of it. And so it's on us to actually shape the direction that it goes in. So in the example that you're talking about, particularly for the U.S. and China, I think that it is particularly important to really lay out the ethical parameters of what is and is not acceptable for use of the for, for application of, of AI to a number of capabilities. And so from the U.S. perspective, I, for the Department of Defense has put forward ethical principles that it believes must be held true in order to deploy artificial intelligence. Those include ranging from responsible use of it to traceability, to ensuring that you have the ability to control it or turn it off if needed. All of those are pieces that are really critical and in every conversation that I have about artificial intelligence within the DoD, you have someone who represents AI ethics in the room as that perspective in almost all cases. And then the flip side of that is that I think that there are other countries that do not hold those values as seriously and the risk is setting a norm for everyone to follow or not follow in terms of what you believe acceptable risk and performance for systems are and so some of that can mean how you are actually deploying it are you using it to subjugate a population because you're performing mass surveillance and collecting inappropriate amounts of healthcare data about people that's one way of, of using it perhaps inappropriately but the other way of doing it inappropriately that might be less malicious perhaps is just not checking the data that you're pushing in and recognizing the fact that your system may exhibit the exact same biases of the humans that made them. And that Mm -hmm. to me is a massive risk for artificial intelligence and one that at all times we have to be tracking. I think maybe some of the challenge comes from the idea that you either have a system where a human is operating it and has full control, or you have a system that is fully autonomous. And the reality, and so unfortunately, what that means is that people think once a system is even has even some autonomy, that you can completely step back and let go of the reins. And that is not the case. There is a massive spectrum in between, most of which involves careful human moderation of whatever an artificial intelligence enabled system is doing. And that to me is a critical piece that we will all have to ingest for this to be become this utopian side that at all times, we have to accept that AI-enabled systems are absolutely able to fail as much as any human operator is. And mm-hmm. you have to be okay with that. And you have to take the right steps to make sure that when those failures happen, you understand what the chain of responsibility is and you understand what you can do to mitigate it. There will never, there, there should never be a situation where you just have a system running loose on its own and nobody checking on it. That is That would be wildly irresponsible. That would probably not result in the actual outputs that you're looking at to begin with. But understanding that humans have to be at least not behind the wheel, but watching the wheel is going to be a big piece of making sure that this goes correctly. So if we can draw an analogy to the, let's say, the Cold War and around the treaties that were set to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons, those treaties that were written in the the 50s and 60s, and I know that we're about to hopefully sign a new treaty with Russia on nuclear Is there, I mean, I'm not aware of this, but are you aware of any discussions happening in international bodies like the UN around new codes of ethics and standards for the proliferation and the growth of AI to address the risks that are inherent with this technology? You know, there are really nascent conversations happening, but the problem is that there is no real understanding of how you technically execute on those 
ethics and morals. And mm -hmm. so it ultimately, it circles back to the folks who are building the systems themselves because, you know, we can have these ideas of how it might be executed and how you might have a system that can explain why it made a certain decision and reflect back on the mistake that it made and understand what bias it came from. But right now, that is a technical issue. Right now, we're at the Defense Innovation Board are, is looking at AI test and evaluation and how it is just a massive bottleneck for AI deployment anywhere in the department because you have to be able to explain why a system did something and if it failed, why did it fail? And right now, that is a really incredibly difficult part of artificial intelligence because so much of that is uncertain, particularly on the machine learning side of having it be able to reflect back on itself and say, why did I do that? Can I follow the exact train of logic that I have built to be able to explain it? Because, you know, the classic example that I think of is you can have a machine learning algorithm looking to identify pictures and it's 10 pictures of a panda bear. And every single time it identifies a panda bear and then the last one, it thinks it's a pencil case. And it's, you know, you in, when you take a step back, it's great performance. Nine out of 10 times you killed it got the right answer, it's a panda bear. But then that one time is so out there and so beyond anything that's within a human's logical train of thought that it makes the user super nervous because it's like, okay, but that one time when you got it wrong, you got it super wrong. You weren't even in the bear category. And so uh, something like that is really important and very much a barrier to achieving any of those higher level norms and standards that international bodies would hope to address. Okay. So in your, you mentioned the, the Defense Innovation Board, and obviously the, what we're seeing in the world today is a rapid sort of change in the nature of what we call the modern battlefield. Could you just give us a perspective in terms of, as these are, like our digital networks and our users grow, I mean, and we're all, you know, let's face it, we're only about 50, 50-60% of the world are connected to the internet. So as our networks expand rapidly over the next few years and the risk of cyber attacks actually increase, as this new digital battlefield, whether it becomes a battlefield or not, is moot, but how do we start to create deterrence or what tactics do, do we deploy either as organizations or as nation states to ensure better national or corporate defense? Against cyber threats specifically or against... Yeah, against cyber threats, yeah. So cyber threats are, are tricky because, as you noted, really network as you have more people connecting to a network, it means that the attack surface is expanding because there are more users and devices that could potentially be leveraged to get in. A way that the Defense Innovation Board specifically has been thinking about this is through a concept that's called zero trust architecture. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I would ex explain this to folks who are unfamiliar with the term is that historically... We, as organizations, both in private sector and in the government, have viewed networks as a castle and moat entry. So you have a moat around your entire castle, and then there's a drawbridge across. And once you can, you know, you have your access point at that drawbridge. Once person is allowed into the castle, they can wander around anywhere they want, and that's totally fine. And just, I'll interject there, so just for clarity for people that don't understand networks, for so if something like the DNC hack that happened, the department, the, sorry, the Democratic National Committee that were hacked in 2016 by the Russians, they just had to get access to that one point, and then they were able to circumnavigate the whole network, taking what they wanted. Is that fair? That is 
That is correct. So there are certainly now there are ways of firewalling in between once you're inside around certain points. But at a certain point when your network gets big enough, that is completely inefficient, very expensive and still very leaky. So the point is, yes, to your point, like once you have one entry point, the odds of you being able to connect to one thing, connect to another to connect to the thing you really want really increases using that traditional moat approach. Now, what we would suggest is that instead, we should be thinking about our networks more as you know, apartment complexes where you have a lot of people who can maybe go in and out. There are doors all the way around. So what you really need to do is be locking the door of every apartment because you understand that there's just higher risk of people coming in and out that you may or may not know. And therefore, it's worthwhile locking the doors of individual rooms because you want to make sure that there's some random person isn't able to get in. Similarly, going forward, zero trust assumes people are going to get across the drawbridge. People are Mm -hmm. going to get into the building. And for that reason, you should have security measures at the front of the data and applications that you believe are most critical and need to be protected. And so by that approach, you can expand as many users and devices as you want. You may have more attackers, what have you, but you still have a common line of defense in front of the pockets of information and data that you believe is most critical. And so we do believe that transition, it is already happening in private sector, but that government would do particularly well to take that on as well. Presumably, there's a barrier to it happening at scale, is I would expect to be budgetary and time. So, so interestingly, it is not, it, there is some initial cost in setting it up. But in the long term, the cost is actually not substantively more than what it would be otherwise. And also a concern that people sometimes bring up is, oh, are you just siloing everything and you can't actually then communicate and send the right data to the right people? But it's not so much that it's siloing. It's just giving the network the network managers exquisite control over who has access to what at what time. And so you can, you know turn on those flips and switches as needed to based on, I need access to this project at this time for these reasons, these are my credentials. And from this device, and I'm not gonna be using these other devices, but this device is what I need it on. And it just gives you that exquisite control and ability to go in without actually building substantive cost on top because you can automate those processes and just have a single point where you are building an online profile of a person and what they could possibly need access to based on, so for myself, I'm the director of science and technology. I am in the defense innovation board. Our organization is housed under the undersecretary of research and engineering inside of the department of defense. I have X security clearance. I am working on these five projects. You're building this really colorful picture of who I am and what I would actually need access to that can then automatically turn on and off which pieces I would realistically need access to across a network. Okay. So, Maybe you can help answer this question for me, my lack of understanding. If we are seeing, as you say, this move away from, as you described, as a moat and single point of access to more from you get into the house and you've got free reign of every room to more an apartment block where you have secured rooms and locks and keys and whatever. As artificial intelligence becomes, accelerates, it's surely encryption standards. There's going to be a race to maintain the development of encryption standards that stay ahead of the pace at which artificial intelligence can break those encryption keys. 
Is that not going to be a constant battle as well? So encryption is certainly going to be a critical piece of it. Artificial intelligence may not really be the piece that drives forward encryption, but it certainly will be, well, it will certainly be a part of what's driving it. But right now, I think there are different ways of going about encryption, whether it's in terms of just encrypting a packet that's going across, encrypting it right before it goes into the entry or endpoint. And end-to-end encryption is really kind of the standard that everyone really should be applying to. But it prompts an interesting question in terms of the future of encryption, because this is certainly my sister's field and not mine, so I I will stay within my technical bounds. But the rise of quantum computing is certainly going to complicate any sort of encryption because it it creates an ability essentially to decrypt something in a very short order. And that will ultimately drive, in my view, the development of an entirely different way of thinking about encryption that will need to be quantum resistant, for lack of a better way of putting that. I'll follow up with merit on that one. You've talked about nuance and technology and the importance. We're seeing, obviously, today, there seems to be a lack of nuance in everything in the world around us, whether it be technology, whether it be politics or and, and race and gender and everything. Everyone seems to be very certain. One of our guests last season, who was an ex-white supremacist, said that whenever he feels himself feeling certain, he re- checks himself to say he has to live with feeling uncomfortable with certainty because that's the wrong place to be. So... Maybe you could reflect on the fact that, you know, in relation to what everything we've read about emerging technologies, we're seeing, we've talked about AI, we've talked about AI, 5G, and all the, the craziness that's written around that. We're also seeing rapid advances in biotech. And when you speak to a lot of futurologists, their biggest fear is what's going to happen with biotech and the, the risks for future pandemics and homegrown bioterrorists. Could you just give us sort of your sort of nuanced view and where these technologies are going and how we have to consider them and manage living normal lives around this rapidly changing environment, not just a, as, a, as use in the battlefield, but just in everyday life? Sure. I mean, I'll start by expressing appreciation for your previous guest's expression of mm. that comfort in uncertainty, I think is critical to injecting nuance into conversations about artificial intelligence, 5G, biotech, any number of these topics, because they are these massive buckets where in reality it encompasses hundreds, if not thousands of tiny subdivisions and problems within them. And so to acknowledge that you well, do not have a full grasp on every single element of the topic to me is critical to being able to have any conversation about it at all. It's the second that you hit that point of certainty and saying, no, this is the word on that topic that Mm -hmm. you're going to get into a bit of trouble. So I think we've, you know, we've talked about artificial intelligence and the future of it. I confess that, you know, my purview is mostly focused on national security. When it comes to its applications in the private sector, I'm less educated and I'm fascinated to learn more about it, but I certainly want to make sure that I do not put forward views as the word, you know, the word of God, that this is what the future of artificial intelligence is, and instead ask questions. And I think that, again, for any of these technologies, the critical element of ensuring that conversations and dialogue and reporting on these technologies remains nuanced is ensuring that at any time you are asking questions rather than simply asserting your opinions. I think that it's very easy to have these knee-jerk reactions to topics where you may have more or less information about it, but it does, you know, it's easy to respond on an emotional basis. But 
pausing yourself when you feel yourself getting to a place where you're starting to make assumptions based on emotional responses and asking those questions to say, I am having this emotional response. I believe it is coming from these places. Let me ask questions about what those places are to ensure that, are they right? Why are they coming from that place? Is there a different way that I should be looking at these topics? I think that's a really critical part to adding nuance to it. Because for any of this, I mean, the future of any of these technologies is really broad depending on the application and the country and the user and the system. And so more so, I would suggest everyone making sure that they are aware of the fact that whatever you're talking about is probably a narrow sliver of whatever that technology is. And accepting that and approaching those technologies with humility will allow you to have a much more effective conversation. Okay. Uh, You sent me some interesting articles and challenging articles to read before the interview and uh, a list of some people to follow. Are there any either books people should read or blogs or Twitter accounts people you recommend people follow if they're interested in these areas? And I'll put them in the show notes. Oh, absolutely. So for AI, I mean, there are so many great sources for this. There are some people who are really very thoughtful on these topics. The Center for Security and Emerging Technology, it's affiliated with Georgetown, but it really, it's an organization that was stood up somewhat recently, but does a phenomenal job of digging through, of putting forward reports that are backed by substantive data that they have collected, both from U.S. approach to AI and also Chinese approaches to AI. And so I really appreciate all of the content that comes out of that organization in particular. In terms of books, there's a book called T-AI, which is a fantastic kind of starter's kit to AI, but also goes into a good amount of nuance. It's by Mike Kanan, who's a lovely gentleman who's the director of operations for the Air Force MIT AI Accelerator. And then folks, you know, there is a newsletter that I would suggest everyone assigned to, which is China AI. I think it's actually C-H-I-N-A-I, which does a really fantastic job of translating AI policy documents that are coming out of China and distilling it into in digestible form. That is a fantastic source. There are so many, but those are really three really fantastic ones that I'd suggest everybody go to. Okay, that's great. Education is obviously dear to your heart in terms of, and particularly STEM. If we are at this forefront of rapid innovation, what would you like to see occur in education to ensure that we move forward in at the pace and with in the direction that we need to prepare ourselves to remain as a nation, and let's say we're just talking about America here, to ensure that the national security of this country is retained and we maintain peace on the planet. It's a big question I mean, there. <laughs> and we, use, we usually say if you were given the keys, <laughs> if we were given the keys to the White House, what would you do to change education policy? But I mean, this is specific. I mean, there's probably some simple things you could maybe recommend. Sure. I So probably two things just kind of off the top of my head that I, I would find to be helpful, specifically regarding national security. We are eternally in need of talented workforce. Mm-hmm. And it is something that it, particularly in the field of technology is increasingly difficult because we are competing against entities that frankly are very difficult to compete with, particularly in terms of like what we're offering is an incredible mission. Uh, a type of work that, you know, you would never be able to touch in any other space. But the flip side is, you know, your salary may not be able to match some of the tech giants, or you may like, you're going to have to face a bureaucracy that is 3 million people deep. I mean, it's really challenging. But the flip side, again, of that is just that the mission is something that's really hard to beat and the feeling that you can get from contributing to that. But I think that we really could do a better job of making it clear to folks what the options are 
for going forward in a technical career and making it clear that government is a compelling option and that government, you don't have to go in your entire life. You could just do a drive-by for a year or two, but even it'll be good for you just in terms of your career and and improving your own abilities, but then also you can contribute to something bigger than yourself. And so I think that will, that frankly is a huge part for national security, a, yeah. a bigger talent pool and making it clear to folks that they are welcome and that they would be incredibly valued if they came. And then the other part, just kind of more generally for STEM and STEM, STEAM, the topics that I work on in general, is I think marrying the technical and the humanities side together a little bit. I worry that when we're young, we're told that you are either a humanities type of person or you're a science type of person. I, I know that I was, you know, I know that was a conversation <laughs> I had at that time. I thought I was a humanities person. Fast forward, <laughs> the universe laughs in the face of your plans. But I think that if we were, if educators were able to more clearly convey the idea that they are both critical to one another, you need the humanities side to have that critical thinking and creativity that will feed science. And conversely, that science and that logic and that reason and problem solving is critical as a structure to provide to your humanities work. And so rather than people thinking with dread of one or the other, I would really hope that everyone would approach both with a very neutral or even keel because they both are necessary to one another. It's not that you are better at one or, or both. That's a great answer. Working with Defence Innovation Board, we've talked a bit about innovation and ambiguity and ideas and change and uncertainty and the importance of creativity. As a leader in your organisation, how do you identify and how do you hire for creativity in a category that many would see as just, oh, you've got the qualifications, you've, <laughs> you tick the box, you know, whether yeah. it be MIT, Stanford. How, how do you determine that? Is it something that's personal to you or is there a, a standard approach that you've, you embrace that others use within the department? It's a great question. And it's something that particularly for our organization, we look for people who have this in, intense creativity and ability to problem solve in ways that one might not expect. And for us, I think part of it is expressing what expectations should be up front to people who might come into our organization and work. So, you know, there will be little structure. You will be facing problems where there is no clear solution. A lot of the times you will be, after reading up on this topic for a few weeks or months, you may be the leading authority on this topic for better or for worse. And yeah. expressing to people that is the reality and saying, look, this is what it's going to be. Are you comfortable with that? Does that uncertainty excite you? If it does, that's fantastic. Do you want to lean into that? Is that something where you want to take that role? So expressing the expectation, I think, is certainly one part of it. And then once they're in our organization, I think of it similar to our discussion about how you're raised as a child of create, creating the opportunity for people to try things, maybe fail, maybe fall a few times and tell them that even if you've fallen, that's okay. You made an effort, you tried something new, and that we value more than the near-term kind of tactical success. Mm -hmm. So encouraging people to take those risks, encouraging an organization where people feel that they can be bold and take big steps and take on more responsibility, I think will always serve any organization well and make sure that they can continue to be innovative. So you talked about the importance of diversity. So you hire, obviously it's important to hire for creativity, but is it challenging to hire given the com competition from private sector 
to hire people in government roles that have the necessary qualifications, mindset and diversity to fill those positions, to give you, to empower you as a team, as a department, to deliver and to remain competitive against international competitors. You know, I personally think of diversity as frankly part of the qualification. Because to me, you are going to be an individual that's slotting into a team. And if you are not adding to the diversity or if you are making the team more homogenous, that is actually to the detriment of the team as a whole. Mm -hmm. And so diversity to me really is a critical piece of that. Now, the flip side of that is the challenge of the pool that you're looking from. And we've had some interesting conversations about, you know, I, I think there's sometimes an argument of, oh, you know, we'd love to hire more women or people of color or of different genders or races, but sometimes they just aren't, don't make as mu up as much of the pool. And to that I answer, then you're not looking at the right pool. I think that it's inappropriate to think that is a, a reasonable answer because there are any number of reasons that they might ha not have access to the pool that you think exists. And so I think just being creative in the way that you reach out, whether it is to uh, female-led STEM groups, whether it is to HBCUs to make sure that you're getting that diversity from that perspective, I think that there are always any number of ways of making sure that diversity is kept up and then once what you... What was that acronym? H HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's a, that's definitely, it's a great pool to, to look to if you're looking for diversity. And I think that once you have kind of that baseline of ensuring that at least your pool is diverse, then you face that separate challenge of technical, you know, that balance of whether technical folks want to come and work for the Department of Defense. But I really do think that ensuring that you are looking at a diverse pool to begin with will solve a lot of your diversity problems on the back end. And then you can separately address the issues of, okay, we have this really stiff competition with private sector in terms of getting the right technical folks in. Because if you look at it as national security, and if this, if you make an analogy to something like the enigma, breaking the Enigma Code in the Second World War and the Manhattan Project, if you think about just the diversity of those white, let's say white males that were brought together to solve these big problems, the lack of diversity on the German side might have be the reason why they didn't make the progress that was made within the US and the, the Allies. So if we look at that in relation to today and we see the imperative to innovate faster than the competition being China, the competition being Russia, the competition being any number of bad actors, the Achilles heel of the competition, let's call them, is their lack of diversity. America's yes. greatest strength has been its diversity and its willingness to bring in people from other cultures and embrace and, in and integrate them. So if you were to say if there had to be one investment that had to happen to ensure the national security of the country. Diversity in all its rich forms, managed, controlled and accelerated, would be one way to ensure and to almost guarantee that America as a nation retains its national security and remains one step ahead of the competition. Because one thing that isn't going to happen in China is diversity. One thing that isn't going to happen in Russia is diversity. So, and I don't necessarily ask you to comment on that. It's just my point of view. 
I would love to comment on that because I think that it's a really important point. And I think that, you know, diversity of thought and diversity of people are inherently linked. And one of the fantastic benefits that we as a country have is this kind of scattershot wild approach that we take at the beginning of a process where you have a problem and we will throw every potential solution at the wall. Whereas competition, or frankly, the Chinese system takes a more top-down approach where you pre-select X, Y, and Z paths, and then you just execute on those. Mm -hmm. Whereas, so perhaps your execution on those three paths are more organized and structured than ours might be, but we have a much wider aperture of potential solutions. So our odds of getting a better solution are much stronger because of that. And that aperture is due to diversity of thought and diversity of people that can feed it. And so I fully 100% agree to, with that diversity is really a key driver to innovation in any technology or in any field really for our country. Great. Well, yeah, I'm not going to go again to the area of politics and elections. So we'll skip to the quick <laughs> questions. What principles do you stand by? I believe in the principles of just... Oh, it, it's going to sound so cheesy, but really just <laughs> hard work and, and humility paired together. I think that it's important that you push hard and at the same time acknowledge that there is always more you can do. There is always more you can learn. There is always a perspective that someone else brings that you do not recognize. So humility in your own work and humility in what other people are bringing to you. But I really do believe that if you just put your head down and grind on your work and give it your best effort, you will set yourself up for success as long as it is paired with that humble aspect where you can acknowledge when you're wrong, you can bring in and ask people for advice when you need, and you you maintain uncertainty. I think that, you know, maintaining that uncertainty and that humility that you know you don't know everything is always the most critical piece to anything. Cool. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time but did turn out to be the right decision? There have been a couple. I think that Afghanistan was certainly one of them of deciding whether or not that was the right move. I think that that year was a bit wild. While I was in Afghanistan, unfortunately, my mother passed away. And when she passed away, there was a bit of a decision to be made about what path I went forward. And I think that there were a couple of ways I could have handled it in terms of going into myself and maybe abandoning a lot of the things that I had been passionate about and that we'd shared together foreign policy was one of them. We'd gotten to a point where we really loved sharing that together. And it was one of those things where I had to make the decision that I loved it enough myself to pursue it and honor her through my pursuit of it rather than abandoning it because it was hard to. Hmm. I think that was certainly a difficult choice, but one that has clearly been very yeah. important, very influential for my career. I think the, that would just particularly be one. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, where do you go to discover new ideas? to an activity that I was not working on previously. So if I need a new idea for one activity, I'll usually try to separate out and do something completely different and let the problem just stew in the back of my head. <laughs> and usually that's the best way. When I'm not thinking about it is, and I'm working on something else is usually when I come up with a solution. Wonderful. Aside from what you're focusing on in these many rich and diverse areas um, of technology, what's one problem that we need to solve? Climate change. It Great. honestly is something that I worry about all the time because I, you know, national security in my mind is the requirement for so many other things, but climate change is the requirement for everything that we do underneath that. Yeah. It, if I were not working in national security, I would certainly be working in that field. Have you read Project Drawdown? I'm familiar with it, but I've not actually read it. Yeah. Watch the Woody Harrelson show, the Woody Harrelson documentary. Uh, it's on Netflix at the moment. It's really good. It's a good summary of it. 
It oh, gives, great. fills you with optimism that there is hope. Oh, good. Um, what's the one question no one asks you that you wish they would? It's an interesting question. Maybe the question is what question I should be asked. <laughs> <laughs> I think may, perhaps one question is how can I serve? I think that in modern day, it is less of the norm to think about public service or not even public service in the sense of national public service, but I also think about global public service. And it's something that I think about a lot, about how my work can contribute, how other people might contribute. And I would love to hear that question more and help people brainstorm about how they can, could contribute to something bigger. Sounds like a team offsite workshop. <laughs> Please. Um, who's made you reevaluate yourself? Merit. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> Merit's, Merit's the perfect person. For yeah. both of us, I mean, she is my rock in so many ways. Nothing good or bad happens in my life without her knowing about it. Uh, and so she is constantly the person who's poking me and, and prompting me to try new things, to re reevaluate my, myself and improve myself. Okay. Dinner party outside COVID. If you could bring four people through history, current, live, dead, who would you invite to dinner to help you plan for a better future? Oh, gosh, that's an interesting one. Let me think about this. So I think I would want a diverse range of folks who could address different pieces. So from an art perspective, perhaps someone like Peggy Guggenheim, who could just address that really innovative approach to art and introduction of new art in from a more political side, perhaps a president who had faced unique, I mean, so many of them ha mm -hmm. have faced pretty exquisite challenges, but both for the entertainment value and the context of what he'd viewed, Lyndon B. Johnson could be a both horrific and entertaining dinner party guest. So perhaps I'll include him in the mix. In terms of military perspective, someone like Admiral Nimitz would be fascinating. And then beyond that, perhaps just to suit, you know, just to make sure that things were interesting and we had full perspective and didn't get too stuck on politics or military, I would just include like a random cave person just to hear about how their experience had been and make sure that we were getting perspective on how far we have come and appreciate mm -hmm. that in all of its richness. Wow, that, that would be a great one to film in Zoom. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate, go study, that's got a dream and ambition and there's an idea and they're being told, forget it, it's impossible? It will be significantly worse to follow something that you're not passionate about and find yourself 10 to 20 years down the road realizing that you wasted 10 to 20 years than it will be to push on something that you're passionate now and perhaps find that it doesn't work. That's good advice. A uh, bit of fun. When you and Merritt go out to karaoke, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> we have a... Uh... Very different tastes. Merritt's tastes are all from the 90s, and mine is much more rap and hip-hop, so I'm not sure we would ever sing the same song. <laughs> okay. But, what would yours uh, be? My, mine would probably be something out of Kendrick Lamar or Childish Gambina or something to that effect. Okay. I'm in the process of putting together a playlist on Spotify of all the guests' karaoke oh, requests. That'll be fun. I'll share it when it's ready. Best recent film or series on Netflix, Apple, or Amazon during lockdown? 
Oh, gosh, I've been watching a lot, to be entirely honest. So I've watched some really interesting documentaries. Let me think about. So frankly, the one that I really appreciated recently, I think it's on Netflix and it's called The Pixar Story. So related mm, yeah, to the book yeah. offering. But I found it such a wonderful mix between the art of the creativity of, of creating these comics or the, you know, these animated characters and then the rise of com- of computers and com- computational capability and graphic design processors where they had to marry the technical and the art in this bizarre way where they talked about the process where the animators would be telling the technical folks of like we want to be able to do this how do we get the compute to be able to do this how do we translate this into a technical format and it was that creative art side that drove technical capabilities that we rely on today and i absolutely loved it okay i will put that in the show notes what book uh, would you like to offer three three listeners that come up with the best comments on instagram or on the website just for folks to read about in general just anything just any yeah you've talked about books around ai and what you do but is there another book you think people should read let me think about that well Maybe I can give maybe I can give two. So one is more with the times, which is how to be an anti-racist mm-hmm. by Egram Kendi. I think that it was it's something that's important to read. It's something that you know even if you've heard heard bits and pieces of it before, I do think it's important for everyone to at least test your own assumptions. And then another one that's a little bit maybe um, off the wall is. I really strongly believe in reading fiction. I think that it's something that's really important just to stir your own thought and abilities. I recently read The Immortalists. It's certainly not new, but it has been out there for some time. And it's just an interesting take on individuals' perspective on control of your own life and death and how you sort of manage that uncertainty, frankly. And I thought that it was a really thoughtful take on it. Wonderful. Okay. Final question. Who should we interview next? Oh boy. Frankly, there are a couple of folks that I could run. Some are in the defense world. Some of them are outside. I do have some friends who are doing some really interesting work in the arts. I know that Merritt probably recommended some of them as well that are overlaps between us. But I have some mentors that I think uh, really helped me build my own creative confidence and application to technical uh, fields. And so I'm happy to pass those names along to you. I think that those would be great folks. Okay. We'll follow up afterwards. Just finish off by thanking you and acknowledging you. I mean, what a what a life you're living. I think I just uh, acknowledge you really for certainly your embrace. There's no question your embrace of nuance, which I think everyone should learn from. I think your tenacity to solve problems and acknowledgement that it is an ongoing challenge for everyone to do and to remain agile. And finally, that combination, as you acknowledge yourself, your humility, but your humility with courage to courage, not just to go to places like Afghanistan, but to throw yourself into a role that is not just credit to you, but to your parents and to the life you've lived and inspiration to all the girls and young women and and young people around you to believe that whatever they think is it may be impossible is possible you are a testament to achieving great things so i really look forward to seeing where you go and look forward to seeing the innovations coming out of the department of defense over the next 10 20 years and going i know the person that was behind that (laughs) thank you so yeah so so yeah but, but thank you and like i say thank you for the time it's much appreciated Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. 
If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.